Hey, Not Past It listeners, it's time for the return of the historical domino effect. You know, that thing where you line up a bunch of upright dominoes, and then you tip over that first one, and it hits the next one, and the next one, and the next one, and it goes like... Well, in our version, each domino will be a mini history story that leads you to the next event in a chain reaction, and will end up at a completely different place than where we started. From Gimlet Media, this is Not Past It, a show about the stories we can't quite leave behind. I'm Simone Polanin. On today's episode, we're going back 123 years ago this week to October 1st, 1898, the beginning of the end of the Spanish-American War. And we'll snake our way through history to the creation of a modern-day sex icon. The dominoes are all lined up, and we'll knock over that first one after the break. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Mary! I'm so happy to have you back. I'm so happy to be back. To join me on this historical domino effect journey, I invited my dear friend. When I need a good laugh, she's the first person I call. I've known her since college. She's back by popular demand. I'm amazed that you would Mary Hallowell. Invite me back. I'm so happy. A lot of people, I've gotten a lot of very positive feedback about the last time you were on the show. Just so oh. you know, you've got fans. Oh, that makes me so happy. Oh my God. Okay. I'm, yeah. I'm buckling my seatbelt. I'm along for the ride. <laughs> so before I even get into it, this is going to feel like a super random question. What's your feeling on candy? Are you a candy person? Ooh, can't. Okay. I'm not like a huge candy person. It's like candy is like for <laughs> Halloween and movies. Like Skittles abs- would lay down mm. my life for Skittles. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Honestly, now that I'm saying it, it's like, yeah, pretty much any candy. <laughs> I like that you're like, candy's only for Halloween and movies. And now you're like, and then I actually <laughs> love all of it. <laughs> well, that's good to know. So tuck that away in the back of your brain for okay. now. And let's start our little domino adventure. Domino number one. We're actually going to begin our journey with the Spanish-American War. Oh, my God. Do you remember this from history class? The Spanish-American War was like before even the Revolutionary War? So the Spanish-American War was in the late, late 1800s. So like 1898. So, you know, not quite. I don't, whatever. Don't worry about it. That's fine. So I would not have known had I not been rigorously prepped before this. So, yeah. So we've got the Spanish-American War in 1898. And um, the war was fought between the U.S. and Spain, basically fighting over all of these island territories in the Atlantic and Pacific Ocean. So places like Cuba, Puerto Rico, the Philippines. Mm -hmm. The narrative was that 
you know, the U.S. went into this war to liberate these colonies, but, you know, they also had a lot of economic incentives and uh, military incentives to be in these places because they're excellent places to park your Navy mm-hmm. in case you ever need to go to war, which the U.S. seems to love to do. Anyways, mm-hmm. we don't need to get into all of that. <laughs> the thing that you need to know is that on October 1st, 1898, 123 years ago this week— mm-hmm. The first peace negotiations began between the U.S. and Spain. In the peace treaty, the U.S. gains all of these territories. They get possession of Puerto Rico and Guam. Spain relinquishes its claim to Cuba. And my question Mm -hmm. to you is, what do you think these territories may have had in common? You said it was Cuba, Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico, Guam, Cuba... The Philippines, they're, you know, doing their imperialism thing. Yes. I think just, I I feel like I'm cheating a little bit from our conversation earlier, but these all sound like very warm places and potentially places that are good areas to grow sugar. You are very smart, Mary. That is exactly what they have in common. So Mm. while... Sugar is not the, like, explicit reason why the U.S. wanted to claim these territories. These were countries that had climates that were perfect for producing sugar. So now we're in the early 1900s. And in order to encourage sugarcane production, the U.S. government actually gave all of these tariff preferences to these new territories. This meant that sugar could get exported to the states at really low prices. Mm-hmm. This worked very well, and sugar took off. And a bunch of U.S. candy companies actually take advantage of this. One in particular goes so far as to set up shop in newly independent Cuba, which brings us to... Domino number two. Mr. Hershey Bar himself, the candy maker, Milton Hershey, lands in Cuba. So Hershey was a couple of decades into his candy empire at this point. Oh, wow. So wait, so Hershey's was started in the 1800s? Yep. Oh, my gosh. You know, old school, old school American business. So Hershey shows up in Cuba in 1916 and, like, immediately falls in love with the place. He, like buys up like 10,000 acres of land. And the longer he stays there, the more invested he becomes Uh, to the point where he actually builds an entire Hershey village in Cuba, just like the one that he built back in Pennsylvania. Fascinating. And in this Hershey village, he builds schools, he builds orphanages, movie theaters, um, baseball diamonds. He even builds an electric railroad. It's an empire. (laughs) But the most important thing about all this is that with this Cuban sugar mill, Hershey doesn't just control candy manufacturing. He actually now owns a huge chunk of the supply chain. Wow. So he's like on fire. There's no stopping this man. And this success continues for the next several decades. Okay. And in 1939... He's approached by another candy maker by the name of Forrest Mars. Oh, right. Mars bars. <laughs> exactly. Thank you for such a beautiful transition into the next domino. 
Hershey meets Mars. Domino number three. Do you know any of the Mars products? I just know Mars bars, but the other ones I don't know. Yeah, Mars bars, um, Milky Way as a Mars product. Oh, okay. Oh, Snickers is a Mars product. Do we know how they came up with the name Snickers? Snickers was apparently named after their family racehorse. Oh my gosh. You know, immortalized. Yeah. Rich people things. <laughs> <laughs> you know, candy empire things. You yeah. know, our, you know how we all have our family racehorse. <laughs> so, this family of candy barons, the Mars family, the patriarch of this family is Frank Mars. He's the one who actually founds the Mars Company. But I would say that in many ways, it was actually revolutionized by Frank's son, Forrest. Oh, heir to the throne. Okay. Yep, exactly. And Forrest is this, like, just, like, fucking candy genius. Like, all those uh, famous candy bars that we just talked about, Forrest had a hand in inventing all of them. Just, like, hit after hit after hit. Just fully, yeah, just fully crushing it. Um, unfortunately, Forrest and his father do not have the best relationship. Uh, Frank left Forrest's mother when Forrest was just a child, um, and the word estrangement has been used a lot to describe their relationship. Um, they did reconnect later in life when Forrest was about 19 years old and they began working together, but despite Forrest's, you know, sort of skill for the candy business— Their relationship deteriorated, and Frank eventually kicked Forrest out of the company in 1933. Mm. And Forrest decides to take his talents elsewhere. He moves to Europe, where the Spanish Civil War is taking place. And he starts to notice that the soldiers are really into this one particular kind of candy. They're like these little bean-sized chocolates that are covered in a candy coating, which over there they called Smarties. So not like the powdery... Different from the American Smarties. Mm-hmm. Not the little fruity... Flavored chalk, I think. <laughs> fruit chalk? <laughs> fruit chalk. <laughs> yeah, it's not the fruit chalk. It's these um, little circular candy-coated chocolates. So he brings that idea back to the U.S. in 1939... And he's looking for opportunities to make candy in America. And this is the point when he reaches out to his father's rival, the Hershey Company. Oh, my God. He crosses party lines. Huge drama. Can you, like, going to his father's mortal eminent? This is like, you know, Shakespearean saga. This is Shakespeare. So Forrest travels up to Hershey, Pennsylvania, basically to be like, hey, I've got this idea for this candy. Uh, Do y'all want to do a hot collab on this? (laughs) Um, But at the time of this particular visit, uh, Milton Hershey was out of town. Um, I don't know, maybe chilling in Hershey Town, Cuba or something. (laughs) Um, and so there are different sort of versions of this story, but allegedly, instead of going to meet Hershey himself, Forrest meets with the next best guy, who is the president of Hershey Corp, a man named William Murray. And he pitches him these little candy-coated uh, chocolate circle things. And Murray is like, 
love the idea. Let's make a deal under one condition. My son, Bruce Murray, has to join in on the venture. So Horace is like, fine. Prince of Candy. Like these like candy boys. (laughs) (laughs) Is Bruce as much of a like ingenue as Bruce does not have uh, the forest to touch, unfortunately. Okay. (laughs) What Bruce does have is the last name Murray. And so Mars and Murray together combine their last names and decide to name their hot new candy the M&M. M&M. Mars and Murray. Oh, my God. Wow. And so they patent this M&M on March 3rd, 1941, which is very interesting timing because this is just nine months before America would enter World War II. Yeah, yeah. And what Mars and Murray are able to do is they snag a huge contract with the American military to basically include M&Ms as part of the soldiers' rations. Wow. So M&Ms are hugely popular because of World War II, and they're available to the public for five cents a tube. So, you know, very affordable candy as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and Forrest sees an opportunity basically to consolidate control over M&M's. So he makes a deal to buy out his partner, Murray. We don't actually know the details of this. They've never been revealed. Both Mars and Hershey are, like, very secretive about this. Oh, wow. Um, and at this point, this is just, like, one feather in Forrest's cap because he's also been slowly acquiring a bunch of the Mars Corporation Basically, as members of his family die off. So that's how Forrest operates. Forrest is such a volatile character. Yep. So now Forrest is in this very advantageous position where he owns the rights to, like, one of the most popular candies in America, the M&M. And now he also owns one of the largest candy companies, the Mars Company. Wow, he's sitting pretty. He's sitting pretty. And he ends up becoming the rival to his former partners over at Hershey. And this is where we have the beginning of this sort of epic battle between Hershey and Mars. Who will win the battle for America's hearts and mouths? And yes, I actually do mean it in the way you're thinking. (laughs) That's after the break. I'm really stoked for more royal family of candy. Info. Welcome back, my sugar babies. Before the break, we knocked over the first three dominoes. Mary, let's recap. Okay. So domino number one. The Spanish-American War leads to the U.S. sugar boom as they acquire a bunch of sugar-producing territories in the Atlantic and the Pacific. Mm. Then domino number two. American chocolate titan Milton Hershey uses the new American dominance to expand his candy empire. And lastly, domino number three. Hershey is approached by Forrest Mars, the cast-out son of the Mars Company, and he convinces Hershey to go in on this new candy, the M&M. But 
their alliance doesn't last very long. Forrest buys the Hershey Company out of their M&M's share while also taking the candy throne atop the Mars empire. And that's how Candy Boy becomes Candy King. Yeah. Control. Spreads his wings and flies. Yeah, yeah. exactly. But that, all that was not enough for Forrest. He wanted more, which leads us to... Domino number four. So Mars is still competing with Hershey for market dominance. And in the 1950s, Mars launches a new weapon, television ads. So I don't know if you're aware, Mary, but Mars has, like, some pretty classic campaigns for M&M's. Which hand has the M&M's chocolate candy? Not this hand. That's ordinary chocolate candy. It's melted. But this one, there's no chocolate mess. Because M&M's milk chocolate melts in your mouth. Not in your hand. Very specific on the melting location. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So they come up with this phrase... Melts in your mouth, not in your hand. Um, and another thing that they sort of contribute to this ad campaign is they create these M&M cartoon characters. So they have a Mr. Plain and a Mr. Peanut. M&M's Plain and Peanut Chocolate Candies. The good guys. And they are, you know, M&M's with arms and legs and <laughs> smiles. <laughs> it's- Plain is the red one and Peanut is the yellow one. Yeah, yeah. And these are sort of like early versions of those characters. Mm -hmm. They don't really have like fleshed out personalities or anything. They're basically just like mascots. Empty shells, if you will. (laughs) You don't have to laugh at that. That's okay. (laughs) But this ends up working very well for mm-hmm. Forrest and the Mars Company. And by 1956, M&M's was the number one candy in the U.S. Oh, wow. Like, wildly popular. Mm-hmm. So over the next several decades, Hershey and Mars are in this, you know, this, like, back and forth of, like, who has the most market share. And Mars is coming out ahead, like, pretty consistently. By 1979, Mars held 36% of the chocolate bar market. Hershey only held 29%. Oh, wow. Yeah, Mars definitely owned the market, you know, Mm -hmm. compared to Hershey. Yeah. Until 1988. Hershey acquires Cadbury Schweppes which is another, you know, large candy and, and, and food manufacturer. Cadbury and Schweppes were together? They were. Like, this is like celebrity gossip. Like, they were together at that time? <laughs> wow. Cadbury and Schweppes? <laughs> Seen canoodling. <laughs> Spotted. <laughs> so after Hershey acquires Cadbury Schweppes, they sort of take over Mars, and now they own the dominant share of the candy industry in the U.S. Okay. And so over the next, like, several years, the pressure keeps building, and eventually the Mars company is like, okay, we need, we need like, a totally new advertising strategy. Uh, we're going to start working with a new creative agency to come up with some kind of grabby ad campaign for our products. Okay. And this brings us to an incredible woman named Susan Cradle. And the thing you need to know about Susan is that people call her the real Peggy Olson. 
like the Mad Men character. Oh, yeah. Okay. Which that's pretty accurate, honestly. <laughs> she actually, <laughs> I don't know if you're familiar with these, but she came up with the Mayhem commercials, which was the Allstate insurance commercials. Do you Wait, know what I'm the, talking yeah, about? Yeah, the guy, so the guy who's like Liz Lemon's boyfriend in 30 Rock. Yeah, Dennis he, from 30 Rock. Uh huh. And if you've got cut rate insurance, you could be paying for this yourself. So get Allstate. You can save money. And- <laughs> yes. That's that's Cradle? That's a Cradle joint? That's, that's a Susan Cradle joint. That's Susan. That's, that's Susan, Susan Cradle. That's all Susan. So we actually got in touch with the Susan Cradle <laughs> because we wanted to fit, you know, like, <laughs> we just wanted to understand why. Why? Wait, wait, like, wait. Why? This is a legitimate never before heard interview with Susan Cradle? Yes, this is this is a not pasted exclusive. The product M&Ms is so beautiful. I mean, the circle, the colors, so beautifully crafted. So in 1995, when this uh, big M&Ms account was up for grabs, Susan was working at this big ad agency called BBDO. And so Susan and her colleagues, they went over to the Mars Corporation to pitch uh, an idea for a new ad campaign. And Susan was like, you know, those old characters from the 50s, like, you know, we mentioned Mr. Plain and Mr. Peanut. She was like, I think it's time that M&M's moves beyond, you know, this like old basic characterization and, you know, try something new. You know, maybe there's something else we can do that makes us a more sophisticated choice. And I remember he looked, he said, I appreciate your passion trying to get me to do something new, but we're not getting rid of the characters. And he saw my face and he goes, what's wrong? And I said, well, they're just kind of, they're empty. You know, they're not interesting. And she was like, you know what? We're going to take these M&M's characters that y'all been fucking with since the 50s and we're going to actually make them interesting for once. <laughs> these, are, these are definitely not her words. <laughs> these, this is my, my interpretation of what she did. Dramatic reenactment, yeah. And he goes, okay, here's the deal. You go tell me what I should do with these characters that would make them interesting and that you would want to write for them. And I promise I'll try to give you the chance. So Steve and I went back and we're like, you know, there's six colors in the bag. And if you think about six, that's kind of the perfect comedic ensemble number of characters. She comes up with this idea of like, all right, let's give each of these different colors of M&M's distinct personalities, um, you know, different characteristics. I've had three people try to eat me today. Three. And she fleshes them out into these full characters. Red is the blustery know-it-all. And he has first child syndrome because he was the first M&M ever created. Anyway, sometimes I wish I were human. Yellow is kind of the, I would say, idiot savant. He doesn't take life too seriously. He doesn't overthink anything. (laughs) I have no idea what you're saying, but count me in. Blue was the next one that we developed. The backstory on blue is that America voted for blue to become one of the colors. Hey, you must be the new blue M&Ms. We turned orange into the more Woody Allen-ish type. I don't care if I'm the official spokes candy for the new pretzel M&M's. There is no way. And then, and then there was green. The green one. We know her because she is that bitch. 
you know, she's the sexy one. And she's also the first female Eminem. We wanted her to be a confident, strong, sexy. So we said, let's let her own it. You know, let's let her be sexy. And that we did a campaign for her. I think she came after Orange, but it was just called What Is It About the Green Ones? Question, sugar. Yes, Dennis. Is it true what they say about the green ones? That is an ugly rumor. It's a lie! How did this thing get started? Okay, so you're not lime. Lime? <laughs> Where do you get your gossip? And it was all innuendo. We never flat out said it, but it was just, you know, let's lean into the urban legend. Yeah, and that urban legend, Susan remembers hearing about it back in the 70s when she was a teenager. When I was in high school, there was a myth in the 70s about the green ones made you horny. And I can smell my high school carpet and I can see the benches where I was sitting with the guys who, you know, we were all just starting to think about what was happening hormonally with us. And I just remember them going, ah, you ate a green one. <laughs> you ate a green one. I'm like, what, what? <laughs> and in fact, I went to a conservative school. So it was the green ones made you pregnant, which I, I love that we went straight from horny to pregnant. <laughs> and in the years since this, you know, caricature was born, the green one has actually really blossomed into quite the seductress. Introducing Raspberry Almond M&M's Premiums, rich premium chocolate with luscious almonds and the sweet taste of raspberries. It's your heart's desire. Oh, I don't know, you guys. Like, maybe we should just all pack it up and go home. <laughs> I also just, I love the little details that they give her. The fact that she has, like, these little high heels and these lash extensions. Yes, the lash extensions. Like, she's she's looking good. That's the thing. It's like, she's doing great. She's got her go-go boots on. She's kind of an empowered M&M, but at the she same time. She always has, like, a like bevel in her leg. You know what I mean? Yes. She knows her angles. Her read is very much like, there are live sexy singles waiting now oh for God, your the call. Voice. Yes. No, the voice yeah. is pornographic. Like, what is wrong with us that we need a hot, like, a sex icon Eminem? Why do we do this? Like, why do we got to sexualize candy to sell it? It is, like, clever in its own little way, but it's also, it's just, like, making a joke out of the way that women have always been perceived as sexual objects. I mean, first of all, she's an M&M. I mean, it's like, <laughs> she has no female parts. She doesn't have sex. She can't have sex. You know, she's just sexy and she owns it. And, you know, I like that Green is sexy and comfortable with her, with that and her. And it sounds like I'm talking about really serious stuff right now. <laughs> it's like, everyone's I'm like, this is just stupid. But yeah, so I don't, you know, Okay. <laughs> I saw you throwing your head back in exasperation when you were listening to that. Please tell me more about that, that reaction. <laughs> I, I don't know if the argument that, like, she doesn't have sex organs is, like, relevant, is it? Well, 
It, it actually might be weirdly relevant in some way. Okay. Okay. Wait. We are taking this one step further, Mary. Domino number five. Let me take you to June 28th, 2015. Okay. Which is, you know, during Pride Month. Uh, the M&M's uh, official Twitter account tweeted a picture of Ms. Green, the green okay. M&M, and Ms. Brown, the brown M&M, who okay. is the other woman M&M. The one with glasses. The one with glasses. One okay. has eyelashes, one has glasses. <laughs> <laughs> The, the, the two the, ways women yeah. can be in the world. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and they tweeted a photo of these two M&Ms holding hands on a beach. Uh, and the quote on the tweet, which was attributed to Miss Green, said, It's rare Miss Brown and I get to spend time together without some colorful characters barging in. And so the internet took that image... And they were like, oh, Ms. Brown and Ms. Green are dating. And Ms. Green is not only a woman, but she's also a lesbian M&M. Okay. Because we're bringing in gender and sexuality to these candies' lives. So... <laughs> oh, my gosh. All right, first of all, beautiful. So now we know that the M&Ms have relationships. They have relationships... They have gender identities. They have sexualities. Okay, if I can be like a little cynical. Yeah. Is this not perhaps an instance of a corporation in the 1990s tapping into like rampant male gaze and sexism and then a short 20 years later being like, hmm, Maybe we can just turn this little train around and tap into, like, a new, like, a more... Like a rainbow washing, basically. Yeah, yeah. Hey, you guys, just so you know, these M&Ms are also gay. Happy Pride! <laughs> Happy Pride by M&Ms. Yeah. I don't know. Is that too cynical? Um, no, that feels pretty spot on to me. <laughs> uh, so, does like, that mean they're not worthy of celebration? That's a separate question. That is actually not the end of the Green M&M's backstory. Further redemption? So in addition to Ms. Green, I guess, coming out, there's also this other piece of internet lore that has not been officially confirmed by M&M's either way. But people noticed that prior to this, like, 1990s revival of these M&M's characters, uh, before we were introduced to Ms. Green, the green M&M's character was a male peanut M&M. No way. Wait, so... so people oh. believe that Ms. Green is also trans, Okay, wait, so initially she was, like, male presenting and now is female and is in a loving... So the green M&M is actually a trans-lesbian icon. <laughs> this is, like, the most triumphant possible final domino. This is like... <laughs> She's been on a real journey... 
But it feels like she's landed somewhere where she feels really comfortable with herself and with her life and with yeah. the love that she's shared. So good for her. Living good living for her. her true, beautiful Eminem truth. Like good for Ms. Green. Good for Ms. Green. I just think it's so special that we started off in, you know, imperialistic war and ended up with a trans lesbian icon. Yes. Even if she is a candy, you know? (laughs) Honestly, especially if she's a candy, like, good for her. Yeah. Yeah. Candy rights. Not Past It is a Spotify original, produced by Gimlet and ZSP Media. This episode was produced by Julie Carley. Last time we had a History Domino episode, we started off with a Nazi invasion and ended up with the ABBA-inspired musical Mamma Mia. If you haven't heard that one, go back and listen. It's a doozy. We linked it in the show notes. Next week, spooky season officially begins. And we've got the first episode in a month-long series of true-life scary stories pulled right from history. They think that she was killing these tenants. She wears black a lot. She has these light grayish eyes. And she holds your stare. She's known as the witch. The rest of our team are producers Kinsey Clark and Sarah Craig. Laura Newcomb is our intern. The supervising producer is Erica Morrison. Editing by Maura Waltz, Andrea B. Scott, and Zach Stewart-Pontier. Fact-checking by Jane Ackerman. Sound design and mixing by Matt Bowl. Original music by Sax Kicks Ave, Willie Green, Jay Bless, and Bobby Lord. Our theme song is Toco Liana by Coco Co. With music supervision by Liz Fulton, technical direction by Zach Schmidt, show art by Elise Harvin and Talia Rockman. The executive producer at ZSP Media is Zach Stewart-Pontier. The executive producer from Gimlet is Abby Ruzica. This episode wouldn't exist without April Merlot's book, Sugar and Civilization, American Empire and the Cultural Politics of Sweetness. If you want to learn more about the connection between the Spanish-American War and the sugar boom in the early 20th century, you should check it out. And in the event that the drama of the Mars family sparked your interest, check out Susan Benjamin's book, Sweet as Sin, the unwrapped story of how candy became America's favorite pleasure. Susan helped us navigate the sticky family history, and we're sure you'll love her work. Special thanks to Jake Maya Arlo, Brandon Cook, Angelina Franco, Joelle Hutchin, Jackie Liardi, Melanie Meacham, Lydia Polgreen, Dan Behar and Clara Sankey, Emily Wiedemann, Liz Stiles, and Nabil Cholampat. Follow Not Past It now to listen for free, exclusively on Spotify. Click the little bell next to the follow button to get notifications for new episodes. And hey, do you have any burning questions about the past? Maybe a story you want us to dig into, a history mystery you've always wondered about? Send us an email to notpastit at zspmedia.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-504-9252. You can follow me on Twitter at Simone Polanin. Thanks for hanging. We'll see you next week. The green M&M is also Susie from Rugrats. Hi, my name's Susie. What's yours? Mm, Tommy. Hi, Tommy. Want me to show you?
That's one of the more disturbing things I'm going to have to like work into my understanding of this earth. We all have our shadow sides, you know? 